All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Hey, just by way of reminder, uh, this is week seven. That means we've got five weeks left. So we go right up to the point of Easter like we always do. Um, we don't break for spring break because if we break for spring break, you don't come back. So we just plow right through spring break. So we'll be here. If you take off, that's great. But we'll be back um, right where we normally are when you get back from spring break. So that's, that's what's going on. Uh, we'll finish up uh, Hebrews in five weeks. And then we'll move on for a summer series. Uh, we're going to be doing the book of Galatians. And so that's kind of where we're headed next. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for the food. We're grateful for the fellowship. Lord, thank you for uh, heat uh, on a cold morning. And uh, we thank you for the spring weather that's coming uh, right around the corner. And Lord, would you... Show up today in might and power as we go through this passage. Help us to see the things you want us to see. Make it clear, uh, make it convicting, and make it encouraging, Father, that we would walk out of here encouraged by what we hear, by what we see, because of what we learn about you. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue in our study of Hebrews. It's a difficult book. It's a chock-full book. We're, we're covering a whole lot of territory and this morning, we're going to be in chapter 9. We're in a section um, that we, we kind of skip over or we don't pay much attention to. We always kind of gravitate to chapter 11. We're going to get to chapter 11, that great hall of faith. But you don't understand chapter 11 if you don't understand chapter 8, 9, and 10. They're kind of the setup, the prequel to that great chapter. So, so we're going to spend some time in chapter 9 this morning. And what I, what I want us to understand and kind of by way of review is, is go back and, and think about what is this guy trying to show these people? We've established the fact that this gentleman who's wrote, written this letter is a Jew. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. He's a pastor of some sort. We don't know who he is. And he's writing to believers, Jewish believers who are outside the land of Israel and he's trying to encourage them because they're having second thoughts about this Messiah, this Jesus, who's nowhere to be found. Nothing has changed. They're living under persecution. They're living outside of Jerusalem. They're wondering where the Messiah is now. And so this whole letter is to encourage them to don't take your eyes off the prize. Don't, don't forget who Jesus came to be, who he said he was, and that one day he's coming back. So we've talked a whole lot about the future, our hope. Don't forget what's going to happen. So in this process, he's juxtaposed the old covenant, the Mosaic law, with the new covenant that Jesus came to bring. Their problem is they're looking backwards. They're, they're looking at the old and they're thinking, maybe we need to go back to this. And he's saying, no, set your eyes on the new. The first one was good. This one's better. This is everything we've been talking about for the last weeks. One's temporary, as we'll see in more detail this morning, the other one is permanent. The new covenant brings something permanent, something real, tangible. It's not meant to last for a while and then go away. It's going to last for eternity. One's mediated by men, Moses, in, in regards to the old covenant. This one's mediated by Jesus. And he's gone out of his way to establish that Jesus is the greater high priest. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than the first Adam. He's the second Adam. Everything about Jesus is better because the first is a shadow. Jesus brings the substance, the reality. Um, it, it's not, no longer just a picture of, a foreshadowing of something. It is the real thing. It has come. Now, what's difficult for these people is they look and they go, well, but where is it? I don't see it. I don't see him, Jesus, and I don't see his kingdom because it doesn't seem to be in existence anywhere we look because guess who's still in charge? Rome. So this is what he's trying to get them to understand. No, it may not look like what you think it should look like, but it is here. He has come. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. The old covenant dependent on men, priests, fallen priests. And we looked at that in detail last week, that these men were fallen from the get-go, from the moment they dedicated the tabernacle, the very next day, the two sons of Aaron, the high priest, who were also priests, committed sin and were killed by God. And it goes downhill from there. We can't depend on men for salvation. We can't place our hope in men. 
but we can place our hope in Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. So the first is partial. The new covenant is complete. Now, what he's done in chapter eight, and he's going to continue in chapter nine, is to keep building on this foundation that the new is better than the old. See, in chapter eight, verse 13, we read, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Now, you got to kind of get into the mind of a Jewish Christian, a Jewish believer at that point in the first century. This would, this would have been offensive to them. You're telling me that everything we have counted on for generations, given to us by God Almighty, through the Mosaic Law, you're saying it is obsolete, out of date, and it's going to disappear. Exactly. That what, we read that and say, yeah, okay, fine, great, because we live under the new covenant. They were used to the old covenant. This whole new covenant thing is new to them. And they're going, well, wait a minute. You're telling me that everything we have trusted in for years, centuries, is now obsolete? Yes, that's my point. And what's interesting is that the word he uses for this in the Greek is, is one that means to declare something to be old. I could, I could declare that of many of us in the room, right? You are old. And you'd go, yes, I know. Thank you. Um, he's telling them that that is old. That old covenant is old. It, they never referred to it as the old covenant, right? It's just the covenant. And he goes, no, it's old. It's antiquated. It's lasted as long as it's going to last. And what's amazing is it's, it's lasted 1,500 years. We have nothing in our culture here in America that's lasted 1,500 years. We haven't existed for 1,500 years. You go to Europe, you go to Africa, and you will see things that have list, lasted 1,500 years, but not here. See, he's telling them this, this thing, it's old because it has served out its time. It's run its course. It, it, it's lasted for as long as God intended for it to last. Now, it's good because God gave it, but it's fulfilled its objective. That's what he's trying to tell them. He's not denigrating it. He's not saying it's bad. He's saying it's good, but it's run its course, and it's time for something new. And again, you have to think how this must have hit them. Well, I, I don't understand. Why, 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 if God gave it to us, why would it ever run its course? Because God has a plan, and that plan has partitions. It has pieces that are put together, and each one has a point in time, and then they go away. There was a time when they had kings. There was a time when they had judges. There was a time when the prophets spoke, and those times have long gone. See, God does things according to his plan. And this is all according to his plan as well. See, what they needed to understand is that old covenant, the covenant they had grown up under, had fulfilled everything God wanted it to do. And one of the things that we've looked at for the last few weeks that it was supposed to do was show men their sin. And guess what? We've seen men's sin. We've seen how the Israelites couldn't obey. We saw how those two sons of the high priest couldn't obey. We, we saw it in the sons of Eli, two priests who also disobeyed and God had to kill them. We have seen over and over again that the extent of man's sin is great, including God's chosen people. So by the time we get to the first century AD, there's a lot of history of Israel. And if you want to go back and study the history of Israel, you will see that they over and over again revealed the fact that they were sinners. The law proved to them that they were sinners. So it did, it did its job. The other thing the law gave them was a knowledge of right and wrong, sin. Because the law said, do these things, don't do these things. There was no way that people could say, we didn't know. Oh, no, you know. It's literally written in stone for you. So they knew sin. They knew what sin was. They knew what righteousness was. But that knowledge didn't produce righteousness. See, one of the things about legalism is that we're, we're prone to legalism because just tell me what I'm supposed to do and then we can't seem to do what we're told we're supposed to do. We, we, we like rules, we just also like to break rules. You know, we like guardrails, but we also like to jump the guardrails. See, they, they had the guardrails given to them by God, but it never produced righteousness. And what's God most interested in? Righteousness. So obedience to the law proved to be impossible. 
You would think by the first century AD, these Jews would know that nobody can keep the law. And yet they're thinking about going back to it. What does Jesus come and offer them? Grace, mercy, grace based on what he's done, not what you have to do. And yet they're going back to legalism. It's all about me, what I have to do. The law, the Mosaic law also revealed that man needs a savior. See, we can look back because we're on this side of the cross and we can see that the law revealed man's sin and it also revealed the fact that they need a savior. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. I hope you understand that, that no matter how hard you try, how good you try to be, you will inevitably fail. You'll have good days, you'll have bad days. You'll have days when you're really walking with the Lord and the next day it all goes to hell in a handbasket. Because if you try to do it in your own strength, you will always fail. You need a savior. And the fact is you and I need a savior every day. Not just the day you walk the aisle, prayed a prayer, gave your faith to Christ, but every day of my life, I need the savior. I need him to guide me, lead me, protect me, Earning salvation was a dead-end street under the old covenant. Nobody earned salvation by keeping the law. The scriptures are really clear about that. And so that's why this is so important. He says, that thing is done for. It's over. It's a dead-end street. It never was meant to get you where you need to go. It was meant to show you, you can't get where you need to go through this. I love this quote from F.F. F. Bruce. If the covenant of Moses' day is antiquated, it's old, our author further implies, so must be the Aaronic priesthood, the earthly sanctuary, the Levitical sacrifices, which were all established under that old covenant. The age of the law and the prophets is past. The age of the son is here and it's here to stay. See, this is just as true today as it was in the first century when this letter was written. The age of the son is here and it's here to stay. And that's what he's trying to get them to understand. And by extension, he's trying to get you and I to understand. We live under a new rule, a new covenant. So in chapter nine, he opens it with this. Now, even the first covenant, that old covenant had regulations for for worship and an earthly place of holiness. This is not news to these people. They, They fully understand this, but he's trying to remind them, if you wanna go back, look back, consider these things. The first covenant, the old covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness, the tabernacle, and then eventually the temple. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. What's he talking about? He's talking about the tabernacle that Moses constructed in the wilderness. Remember, he goes up in the mountain, God gives him the law, God gives him the uh, plans for the tabernacle, he tells him to build it, he shows him a model of the heavenly tabernacle, this is what it should look like, this is what it should reflect. He goes down, he gathers all the materials they need from the people, they build it, and this is what he's describing to these people. Now, these people to whom he's writing, living in the first century AD, had never seen the tabernacle but they knew the stories of the tabernacle. Why? Because they're good Jews. They had been raised on the stories of the tabernacle. And so all he's doing is telling them, remember back during the days of Moses, under the old covenant, there was a place called the tabernacle. And he's just describing it. He describes the holy place. Then he says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold and which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. One of the things I love about this guy is he goes through all this detail. And one of the reasons we struggle with this book is if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, none of this makes sense. Like if you've never read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you will never understand what he's talking about. So fortunately, if you were here for Exodus, we've gone through this, but he's just describing something they're very aware of. It's the earthly tabernacle. But he says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. I think there's two things he's saying here. I don't have time to get into this and none of us have ever seen it. He's never seen it either, right? He didn't live back during the days of Moses. So he's describing something he's never seen. He just knows it based on the Old Testament scriptures. 
He goes, A, I don't have a whole lot of time to go into detail because that's not the point, but this is what it looked like. These were the elements that made up that place, this earthly place, this earthly tabernacle, this tent, this dwelling place where God came and dwelled among the people. It's the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this not very big glorified tent that was surrounded by a fence. And this is where God said, I'm going to come and dwell with you. I'm going to leave Mount Sinai, the top of that mountain, and I'm going to come down and I'm going to take up residence with you. See, every time they set up camp, this thing, this tabernacle was in the midst of the camp and they arranged all their tents around it. It was the focal point of the camp. Why? Because God dwelled there and he dwelled in this inner area. This is a simple schematic of the tabernacle. You've got the the fence going around it, and then you have the courtyard, you have the holy place, and then in the inner recesses, the smallest place is called the most holy place, the holy of holies, it's sometimes referred to. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And on that mercy seat, the glory of God would come and dwell. This is what he's describing. He's saying, guys, there was this place called the tabernacle. It was constructed by men, but it was a place for God to dwell in, the presence of God. And then he goes on, he says, these preparations, the construction of this thing, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. He's talking about the functionality of this earthly tabernacle. Now, it's mirrored in the temple. At this point in time, there is a temple in Jerusalem. This is AD, probably around 60. It will be destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. But there is a temple, and it reflects the same basic design and functionality. But he's going all the way back to the Old Covenant. Why? Because that's what he's been talking about, old, new. The old way, new way. And he says, in that place, in the holy place, the priests would come and do their thing. The ordained duties that God had given them. Remember, that's that first section. So you you go from the courtyard and you enter the tent and there's a first room and it's called the holy place. And they could go in there. They were expected to go in there every day to do their thing. They had to be cleansed. They had to be purified. They had to be right. They had to have right garments go through the right rituals, but they could go in there and do their duties. But in the second, what's he talking about there? In that inner recess, the holy of holies, the most holy place, in that area, only one person could go. The high priest could go and once a year. So you see something going on here. He's explaining these people, the functionality of that tabernacle. But there's a point. I think they're going, we know all this. You know, don't take me back to kindergarten. I know all these things. And he's, you know, there's something you don't understand. There's something greater going on than you've ever thought about because there's, there's a picture painted here that they need to grasp. In the first section, the priest could go in and out every day. They were expected to go in and out every day, burn incense, change out the, the bread on the show table. They, they, they had duties that they were to do, but in the most holy place where the presence of God dwelled, only one person, the high priest, could go once a year. And we looked at last week that he had to go through a whole series of rituals before he could go in there because if he didn't do the rituals, he would be a dead man. And it says that when he goes in there, he had to take blood. He had to go in with something to offer, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, in my email I sent out this week, I said, we're going to talk about two things this morning, barriers and blood, which is a really good advertisement to come, you know, barriers and blood. But that's what this passage is all about. This is the point he's trying to make. Whether they thought about it or not, in the tabernacle, there were barriers and blood was involved. And that's exactly what he's talking about. He had to offer blood for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. This is his main point. And this is going to be so easy to miss. He's telling these people, if you want to go back 
to the old. This is what has to happen. Every day the priest could go into the, the first area, but only once a year they could go into the second and only one man, and he had to offer blood on behalf of his sins. He says, as long as that tabernacle stood and as long as the temple now stands, the new can't come. The, the, the better can arrive. But he wants them to understand it has come. That means that must have been done away with. And what's interesting is he's writing this probably in 60 AD, not knowing that in just really a few years, even the temple is going to be done away with. And when the Romans destroy it, it will never be built again. It's like through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is prophesying and he's letting them know that all of these things, these symbols, these shadows of the greater are going to go away because as long as the earthly tabernacle still stands, the new can't come. It's like if you, if you uh, own a piece of property and on that property is an old dilapidated house and you want to build a new house where it stands, you've got to eventually take down the old house, right? My, my in-laws live literally behind me. Uh, when they made the plans to build there, it was not the happiest day in my life. Now, I love my in-laws, but to have your in-laws live right behind you was not something I was excited about. And yet... There was an old house there in which my mother-in-law's mother lived in for years, and they had to tear that down so they could build a new house. This is the picture here. The old has to go away. And I hated to see that little farmhouse go, but there's no way it could be remodeled. And so they tore it down and they built something far better. See, this is what he's trying to get them to understand. You want to go back to something old antiquated that is obsolete and needs to go away so that the new can fully come. But there's another thing he's telling these people. In that tabernacle, there were barriers. There were barriers to God. And this is something I don't think these first century Jews were thinking about. All they knew was, man, in the tabernacle, God dwelled. In the temple, God dwells but you're telling me my Messiah is somewhere up there. I kind of want to go back to the old ways where I know God is and I can go there and there he is. He's in the Holy of Holies. I don't get to see him. I don't get to go in, but I know he's there. But see, what they don't understand is that in that old system, in the tabernacle, the veil kept anyone from ever entering into God's presence. Now that may not mean much to you, but it means a whole lot to me because the one thing I'm learning the older I get is that I have full unbridled access to God Almighty 24-7, 365 days a year. The only thing that keeps me from entering God's presence is me. I can go in any time I want. It's almost like the garden in its original state when Adam and Eve could walk and talk and fellowship with God and then sin put up a barrier. See, he's telling them that in the old system, there was a barrier and the barrier was sin. Why couldn't the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies whenever he wanted to? Sin, whose sin? His sin, the sins of his clan, the sin of his family, the sins of the people. See, no, they just couldn't waltz into God's presence. Even just the holy place, that outer area, they, they couldn't just walk into there whenever they wanted without first being purified of what? Sin. Sin was a problem. Guess what? It's still a problem. Sin is still a barrier to God, but because of Jesus Christ, we have access to God because we have had our sins paid for, forgiven. We've been cleansed. We've been made righteous. But see, in this case, if you want to go back to the old, sin separates people from God. Why? Because he's holy and you're not. I read this and I think, God, how stupid these people are, that they would want to go back to that. But guys, I know you're like me in that you go back to legalism in a heartbeat. You, 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 you screw up, you make a mistake, you sin, call it what you want to call it. You do something that you know offends God, and then you desperately try to fix it. You try to win back God's favor. You try to do something that will please God. Well, I, I, I did something I shouldn't do, so I'm going to read the Bible 
for an hour. Nothing wrong with reading the Bible for an hour, but when you do that, if that's your motivation to somehow please God with your actions, that's legalism. That's going back to the law. That's trying to earn the ability to come into God's presence by your own behavior rather than entering in based on the blood of Christ. See, this is still alive and well today, even though we don't have a tabernacle, we don't have a temple, we don't have a legal system like they did, but we are so prone to legalism. See, it's all about the veil. In that tabernacle, there was a veil that divided the holy place from the most holy place. And that veil, we're not gonna look at all the details, but it it was a veil that God designed. He, He put it there and it had a function. It had a reason. It was elaborate. It was pretty. It was decorative. It had cherubim on it. It was it hung from top to bottom, but it was designed to separate one place from the other. It's a, it's a veil, it's a curtain. It literally, and most properly, could be translated as that which habitually shuts off. You know, we have doors in our home. We have doors to separate one room from another. Um, we have a door that goes into our bathroom so that we can go in there and lock that door to keep people from entering into that sacred spot. Well, that's what the veil was. It, it was a veil. I, I, I hear veil and I think something thin, you know, something, this, this thing was about four fingers thick. All a fabric of different kinds, elaborately woven, but it was thick and it was meant to provide a barrier to shut off that place. See, we don't think about that when we think about the tabernacle, when we think about the temple, but that room, that little inner room, which was not much bigger than a small bathroom, that's where God dwelled and there was a barrier to him. See, here's what God told Moses. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into place. We heard a sermon on this uh, this last week. Jonathan Murphy talked about Satan being a cherubim, an angel, a guardian angel. That's what this is talking about. Angels were woven into the fabric and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there in the holy of holies within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. That's its functionality. Now we read that and we think, well, it's kind of like a door. Well, it is kind of like a door, but it is a permanent barrier from one place to the next because in that place, who dwells? God. So why is there a barrier? Because you are sinful and you cannot come into the presence of a holy God unless you're cleansed. By what? Blood. See, this this is the reason it's blood and barriers. There's a barrier. And the only way to get past the barrier is is with blood. Exodus tells us that he, Bezalel, who was the chief architect of this tabernacle, made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it, he made it. Now, what's really interesting about that, I don't know how many times I've read that account of the description of the veil, but why are there cherubim? Why are, why are there these angelic beings? Now, we don't know how they were designed or what they look like, but I think Moses was given a vision of what to make, but he had them uh, woven into the fabric. But why? Well, we know that cherubim stand around the throne of God in heaven singing holy, holy, holy. Not sure I want that job, but that's their job. They sing holy, 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 24-7, 365 days a year. That's your job. They, they surround his presence. We know that on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim with their wings folded over that mercy seat. Everywhere you see God, there are cherubim. But what's the real purpose? Well, it has to do with what? Separation. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter three. After the fall, what happens? Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a barrier. What happened? They sinned. 
they disobeyed God. They did what God told them not to do. They ate the fruit of the tree that he put off limits. And as a result, sin enters the equation. And now, no longer able to walk in fellowship with God, enter into his presence daily, walk with him, talk with him. They're cast out of the garden and what is put at the gate? Cherubim. Two angels to keep you from entering back into the presence of God. See, that's exactly what that veil is meant to represent. Man can't enter into and have access to the tree of life, the tree of eternal life. You can't do it. Why? Because of sin. See, all of this is for him to make a point. And it may escape us. It may be hard for us to get our heads around, but we desperately need to try because it's still important today. He says, according to this arrangement, what arrangement? A veil separating the holy place from the most holy place, preventing access to God's presence. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Once again, he's going back to the old and saying, hey guys, no matter what that high priest did, no matter how much blood he put on the altar for his sins and the sins of the people, it didn't cleanse the conscience. And the problem you and I have is our conscience. It's not our flesh. It's it's not the sins we do. It's the motivation behind the sins we do. It's a heart problem is essentially what he's saying. Those things couldn't perfect the conscience, but only deal with food and drink and various washings and regulations. The old covenant sacrifices never could fix the real problem. My problem, your problem is a heart problem. It's not an activity problem. It's not I did this or I did that. It's why I do this or that. It's the motivation. It's the rebellion. Why were they kicked out of the garden? Is it just because they ate a particular fruit from a particular tree? Yes, but it was the rebellion behind the action. It was the heart that led them to disobey God. See, it's always the heart. It's never the outward. We, we obsess with the outward. If I could just stop doing X, if I could just refrain from looking at this, if I could stop saying this, if I could stop doing this, we think that's the situation. But guys, you can stop doing any of a number of things and never fix the heart. You know, one of the, the, the biggest struggles we as men have is immorality, sexual sin. Um, some in the room may have or may still struggle with pornography. Um, and there are all kinds of things you can do to stop looking at pornography. You can put things on your computer to protect you. You can ask people to hold you accountable. You can do all kinds of things. You can, you can sell your TV. You can get rid of your laptop, but it doesn't fix the heart. And until you fix the heart, you haven't fixed the problem. And that's true of every sin in our lives. So he's saying, you want to go back to this old system but all it can do is deal with the external food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. It served its purpose, but it never could function to serve as a solution to the real problem. It can't cleanse the conscience. It can't fix the heart. That's what this is all about. Richard Phillips says, the curtain in the tabernacle was a barrier erected by God, but there's another barrier within. Knowing our guilt, we naturally erect our own barrier against God. We dread drawing near to his presence, dread seeing him in his holiness and being seen by him in our sin. When I first read this, I went, ah, that's not true. But the more I thought about it, the more true it is that when you get into a pattern of sin, you don't necessarily want to be near God. Because when you get near to God, what does he do? He shines his flashlight on your sin and you don't want to see your sin. You want to excuse your sin. You, you, you want to be okay with your sin, but God will never let you be okay with your sin. So our conscience is what keeps us really from entering into God's presence. I, I don't want to be seen by him. It's like when you're a kid and you do something you know your parents don't want you to do, the last thing you want to do is see your parents. Have your parents walk in while you're doing that thing you're not supposed to be doing. See, our consciences create a barrier. It's the fact that we don't walk with him that keeps us from wanting a relationship with him. It's not just a physical barrier. It's an internal barrier. 
F.F. Bruce says, the real effective barrier to a man, a man or woman's free access to God is an inward and not a material one. It's ex- it exists in the conscience. It's only when the conscience is purified that one is set free to approach God without reservation and offer him acceptable service and worship. So here's the reality. If you ever reach the point where you feel like I'm not worthy to come into God's presence, then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand what Jesus Christ did for you. He has purified you. He has cleansed you. How often? Once and for all. He has done what you could never have done. Do you sin? Sure you do. Do you offend God? Regularly. But you can still enter into his presence because of the work of Jesus Christ. You go back to the old system, you go back to legalism, and that's not true. See, the problem is these things, the old way, legalism, human effort can only deal with regulations for the body. They can't fix the inner problem. How many times have you made promises to God? God, I'm going to stop doing that. God, I won't do that anymore. And you, you hold up the bargain for a couple of weeks and then you fall right back into your old habits, your old sins. And then you feel guilty and then you don't want to have anything to do with God. You're embarrassed to come before God, but God says, no, come into my presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. See that the old was meant to last until the time of reformation. This, this is an important point that he's trying to make to them and to, to you and I, is that something has been reformed. Something has been fixed that was in essence broken. It literally means a making straight, a restoring to its natural and normal condition, something which in some way has got out of line. That system could never do what it would t- intended to do. And here's what's amazing, is that God gave it to show them their sin. Paul makes it really clear. Why was the law given? To show men their sin. But the more they sinned, the more they tried to keep the law. Isn't that amazing? You know, you sin and you know it's wrong and you keep trying to fix the problem of why you sin. Well, I got to stop doing that. I got to stop looking at that. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to sell my TV. I'm going to get rid of my internet. I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with those, all those things, but they're band-aids. They don't fix the problem. It's you trying to fix a problem that Jesus Christ has already fixed. And that's what he wants them to understand. It's a season of reformation. We've entered a new season. It's a time to perfect that which was imperfect and incomplete. God gave it but he gave it for a reason. Now he's brought the real thing, the real thing. He says in verse 11, when Christ appeared, he appeared. Notice again, he uses what? Christ, not Jesus. Why? What does Christ mean? Messiah, the anointed one. Your long awaited Messiah appeared and he appeared as what? A high priest of the good things that have come, not our coming, they have come. See, these are Jews who place their faith in Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, and they're thinking about walking away from it. He goes, no, he is here. You can't see him, but he has brought the things that have come. The new has come. See, it's not out there in the future. It has come. Then he says, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He's talking about the heavenly tabernacle that we touched on last week. Old, new, earthly, heavenly, partial, complete, temporary, permanent. There is a new heavenly tabernacle, not made with hands. It's God's creation. And Jesus Christ, when he died and resurrected and rose on high, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. See, What they've got to understand is that you want to go back to blood sacrifices. The greatest blood sacrifice ever given was already given for you. Who? Jesus Christ. He's done what no other animal could do. He's shed blood that is more pure than any animal's blood could ever be. He's done it by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption not the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. 
None of those things work, and yet you want to go back to that. You want to go back to human effort. You want to sanctify the flesh. But what did Jesus Christ come to do? Fix our heart. And until we fix the heart, the flesh is always going to be a problem. See, our flesh is fallen, guys. You, you, you live in fallen bodies. This flesh will always be our arch nemesis. We'll fight it till the day we die or he calls us home. But it's our heart he's come to transform. One day he's going to fix this flesh. One day we're going to get glorified bodies. But in the here and now, right now, we still battle the flesh. We still have to fight this thing. But we do it through the strength we've been given because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See, so he's saying, don't go back. Rely on the better, the blood of Jesus Christ. I've had guys ask me before, you know, man, how much blood got spilled on a typical day in the use of the tabernacle? How much blood did they spill? Gallons upon gallons, hundreds of gallons of blood was spilled that could never fix the problem. Tens of thousands of animals every year, hundreds of thousands were slaughtered and their blood spilled out to atone for sin, but it was never complete. But the blood of Christ did it all. It was perfect. It's superior. It's better, better than the blood of goats and bulls. Only it could purify the heart. Those things purified the outside. They purified the flesh, but couldn't purify the heart. We have a heart problem. Mankind has a heart problem. You know, when we see sinners and they're all around us, and when we see people doing things that we find offensive to our conscience, we find them offensive to our God, we get obsessed with the thing they're doing and we fail to remember that they have fallen hearts. Their hearts have not yet been redeemed. And but for the grace of God, go I. I could be just as sinful. I could be just as bad, but I've had my heart changed. They haven't. They're blind. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. See, we need to understand that all those people around us who we get bent out of shape with because of the way they live their lives, they have a heart problem and they need the blood of Christ. They need what we got. See, the old way dealt with defilement of sin, defilement from contact with dead bodies, all kinds of things. That's why he mentions the red heifer. The red heifer was an animal sacrifice that they burned and then they took those ashes and they kept them in a secure place and they would mix it with water in order to purify people's sins. All of this is about outward purification. If you got defiled by coming in contact with a dead body, then you would have to have the blood of the red or the water of the red heifer ashes sprinkled on you and it would cleanse you. It would ceremonially cleanse you, but it didn't fix your heart, right? It's all about ceremony. It's all about pretext. It's all about outward, not inward. And he's telling them, don't go back to the old way because it will not accomplish what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. Don't go back to legalism. Don't go back to earning. Don't go back to doing what you think you need to do to get God to love you more because God showed his love for you by doing what? By sending his son to die in your place. He's the better mediator, he says, of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive what? The promise, eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, it goes all the way back. What's cool about this covenant is it's retroactive. It's not a from this point forward. It goes all the way back and it takes care of sins committed even under the old covenant. That's how great this blood is. Then in verse 16, he, he kind of changes kind of the topic and he starts talking about wills. He says, for where, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. If there's a will, a will and testament, that thing is of no good until somebody dies, right? If you've got a rich relative who's put you in their will, that doesn't do you any good until that person dies. Now, don't pray for their death. 
That, that's not the point, but somebody has to die for the will to c- become effective. That's his whole point here. And what's interesting is he's using the very same word that he's used all along about covenant. He says, a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. It's the same word that he's used all along. It has a couple of meanings in the Greek, but it basically says the promises that you're waiting for, that I'm waiting for, that these people were waiting for only came available upon the death of Christ. They, they were enacted by what? His death and the spilling of his blood. It's the same word for covenant. The covenant is based on blood. The covenant is based on the death of Christ. It literally means the last disposition which one makes of his earthly possessions after his death. Jesus Christ died so that he could make available to you what? Holiness, sanctification, justification, a right standing with God. All of those things became yours upon his death. His will went into effect upon his death. But the cool thing is he ain't dead. He's alive. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's still interceding. And there's still aspects of the will, the promise that have yet to be fulfilled, right? We're waiting on those things, but we have been redeemed. His death redeemed me, it redeemed you. We got redemption only through his death. It couldn't have come any other way. And that death involved what? Blood. Redemption from all the sins we have ever committed, past, present, and even those yet to be committed. New will, new testament, new promises. And the promise, the most incredible promise is this one, eternal inheritance. But to get it, he had to die. See, what these people are wrestling with is that he's gone. Yes, he's gone. He ascended on high, but he's coming back. He told the disciples right before he left, if I go, I will come back. That's a promise. If I die, I will rise again, I will go, but I will come back. And that promise still holds true today. It's the completion of our redemption. It's the finish to the plan of God. See the original covenant conditional, you had to do what? Perfect obedience. Anybody ever pulled that off? No. Anybody ever will pull that off? No. Only one person pulled it off and that's Jesus Christ. He did what the law demanded. See, we know from Deuteronomy, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, I'll bless you. But what's the second part of that that equation? But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God to do all his commandments, I'm gonna curse you. That was living under the law and you wanna go back. You wanna go back to legalism? Then you have to keep every law God ever gave you. Otherwise, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are what? Destroyed. What's the result of sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. That still holds true today. It was true then, it's true now. And so death awaits everyone who's not yet been made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, God says, behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son, the soul who sins shall die. What's the problem with that statement? All souls will sin. We've all fallen into sin. The wages of sin is death. But here's the cool part. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's free, it's yours, it's mine, it's come, it's taken place. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Jesus Christ had to die. And it was true in the old covenant, it's true in the new covenant. It was inaugurated, it was put into effect by what? Blood. It's non-negotiable, you can't get around it. Somebody's gonna die for sin, either you or Jesus. I'm glad Jesus chose to die. See, this has been going on since day one. The old covenant was inaugurated with blood. Moses initiated the old covenant with blood. It's how the whole thing went into effect. Exodus 24 tells us, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It was inaugurated. It was set into action with blood. And yet Jesus takes this same idea when he has the last supper with his disciples and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant. See, he's telling them that I'm I'm headed to the cross and I'm gonna shed my blood. 
Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is the whole key to what we believe in. Jesus Christ had to die, had to shed his blood to break down the barrier so that we might have forgiveness. See, there's all kinds of benefits with Jesus' blood. Removal of sin and guilt, satisfaction of God's wrath, reconciliation to God, our redemption from the curse of the law and from slavery to sin. We could go on and on about the benefits of the blood of, God, of Christ, but the most incredible one is eternal life. See, we've talked all on and on about the fact that he's not yet done. There's something great to come. And in verse 15, he says, therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive what? The promised eternal inheritance. It's not your best life now, it's your best life to come. There's something greater. So verse 28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here's your first question. Go back and look at those benefits of Christ's blood. Which one means the most to you? And you may pick two, you may pick three. You can say, I like them all, but try to pick one that means the most to you. See, there are benefits to his blood. Why would the news of a heavenly tabernacle have been an encouragement to the letter's readers? Does it encourage you? Why would him talking about this place where Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father encourage them when they're thinking about going back to the old one? Does it encourage you? Finally, according to verse 28, we should be waiting eagerly for Jesus' return. But why? And are you? Are you eagerly waiting for him to come back? Are you content with where you are? Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the author of this book. I don't know who he is. You do. And yet I thank you that your Holy Spirit used him to pen these words for those people back in the first century, but also for us sitting in this room here in Parker County in the month of February, 2024. Would you bring them alive? Show us that we serve a greater king who has a greater kingdom to come. And we are already citizens of that kingdom because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.